listeners, and welcome to the NK News podcast. I'm your host, Jacko Zwetslut, and today it is the evening of Sunday, the 27th of June in Seoul, but morning of the same day in England, whence I am joined via Zoom by my guest, Professor Keith Howard, to talk about music in North Korea. Before we do that, I'd like to remind you all to please leave a review about this podcast wherever you can and share this episode with everyone you don't know, uh, rather with everyone you do know and four people you don't. Secondly, check out nknews.org and consider buying a subscription. If you sign up for the annual plan, it's less than a dollar a day, and that helps to fund the excellent journalism that my colleagues put out every single day. Also, if you have any feedback or questions or guest recommendations, email us at podcast at nknews.org. So my guest today, Professor Keith Howard, is an ethnomusicologist, musicologist, and anthropologist with regional interests primarily in Korea, but also in Siberia, Nepal, Thailand, Kyrgyzstan, and Zimbabwe. He's a professor emeritus and former head of Department of Music, School, and Arts at the School of Oriental and African Studies at the University of London. In February last year, he published Songs for Great Leaders, Ideology and Creativity in North Korean Music and Dance at Oxford University Press. You can find that at the online bookstore. Uh, welcome on the show, Professor Howard, and thanks for joining us. Thank you. Good morning, good evening, and whatever it is, wherever you're listening. Indeed. Uh, to lead us into the discussion, I thought it would be nice if you could play us uh, a bit of a North Korean song that you think is particularly interesting or noteworthy. Uh, which song have you chosen for us? So we're going to listen to a little bit of We Will Follow Only You. Um, which is a song that is basically associated with the period 2012-2013 when it came out. It's for the new leader, Kim Jong-un, mm. current leader of North Korea. Okay, so from that transition period. All right, well, we'll listen to the first minute or so from that, and then we'll come back in and talk about it. <laughs> Okay, so uh, tell us what is particularly interesting or noteworthy about that song? Well, that's one of the songs that um, was extremely common in the early years of Kim Jong-un's um, um, leadership. And it was essentially strengthening his hands at a time when people were beginning to, to say, well, how long can he last as leader? Will mm. there be a coup? Will there be something that happens? And no was the answer. It became particularly well known after um, his uncle, uh, Chung Song Tech was yeah. executed um, and it's associated with a particular piece in, in a newspaper where the manager of a Vinilon factory, Vinilon was a sort of nylon substitute associated with his father. All my best suits are made of Vinilon, incidentally. I think it's made from, from uh, rock, isn't it? It's a rock fibre? Somewhere there, yes. Yeah. I'm not quite sure myself, but it, you know, it's associated with you know, people saying, we will only follow you. Yes. Uh, dear leader, Kim Jong-un. So that's ah. the significance of it. And which band is it that, uh, that plays this song? Um, it's a number, but um, the one we heard there was Morambong Band, which is a, a female band, as we know, mm -hmm. been popular for the last 10, 11 years. It came out of a larger group 
it actually resulted, we think, from um, the North Koreans deciding that they needed to have more women in ah. music bands. And there's an, an anecdote told by the New York Phil um, when they went to North Korea in 2007, 2008, whenever it was. Mm -hmm. They pointed out that the National Symphony Orchestra was all male. Ah. And why was that? It's probably much more complicated than that. But Morambong is um, a band that started out as, as instrumental, but then adds in the, the voices after a period when it appears that the censors and the ideologues were saying, well, hang on a moment, we're getting a little bit sort of um, K-poppy, if you like. Oh, yeah. Uh, um, we shouldn't be. We should be honouring our tradition and making sure that the ideology is very clear. And you, you make sure the ideology is there in songs. If you have vocals, early Morambong band songs didn't have vocals, they were instrumental. Sort mm. of almost like China's 12 girls bands from the turn of the millennia to start with. Now, uh, later on in the show, we'll play some clips from a, a second and a third song. But just sort of talking about North Korean music in general, to some people who are not North Korean, uh, a lot of North Korean music sounds the same. It, it has a lot of bombast to it. Um, are North Korean listeners more attuned so that their ears can tell a big difference out of what may sound to outsiders as a small difference? Oh, indeed they are. Um, I remember when I was there in, in actually 2000, which is quite a long time ago now, but the music that we were hearing in the, the car as we went places, you know, I'd, I'd hired a car, mm -hmm. was always the same song. So I said to my, my guide one day, look, I'm, I'm getting bored with this. Can't we have something else? Yep. And he said, yeah, I'll bring something else tomorrow. And he did. He brought some cassettes of children singing the exactly same songs same songs yes oh dear so to my mind no difference to his mind quite a lot of difference <laughs> uh, tell us about the the title of your book songs for great leaders there are indeed many songs in north korea written for and dedicated to and sung about great leaders such as the one that we had just before we will follow only you why are there so many and what can we learn from listening to and studying them well, essentially, songs are there to, to promote the ideology and the orthodox view of the state. Um, and the state is, from the top down, the leaders um, following through. So um, all the way back, right back to the 1940s, songs were required to be ideologically sound. And that meant that many of them would be about the leadership. Mm. And they tell about the time of um, Kim Il-sung, the founder of uh, founder president of, of North Korea, um, his time as a, a guerrilla, his childhood, all his revolutionary deeds, how he was rebuilding Pyongyang and North Korea, then going into the war, then coming out of the war. As he cedes power to his son, or as his son becomes more prominent, Kim Jong-il, so Song starts talking about Kim Jong-il, to bolster Kim Jong-il's reputation, um, and authority, essentially, songs start talking about his mother, who was the first wife of, mm -hmm. uh, of uh, Kim Il-sung, and she died in 1948-49. So you've got a sort of triumvirate of, of father, uh, wife, and son. And then as, as Kim Jong-un starts to take over, in fact, as, uh, after Kim Jong-il in, in 2008 had what we now assume were a series of strokes, a song appeared called Footsteps. Right. Which was, the, the song was about the general before we even knew the name of the young That's general, right. is that right? Before Kim Jong-un was named anywhere, before he actually was on the Supreme Assembly or anything. But yes, it was saying there's going to be a transition, essentially, and the transition is going to be peaceful. 
and the person who takes over will mm. follow in the footsteps of the current leader. Ah, yes. So it's a fairly transparent song about the leadership, essentially. And so songs have to maintain that sort of orthodoxy, the state control, the leadership and everything else, and to be ideologically sound. So many songs are about leadership. Right. Now, music in North Korea, it is everywhere. And one cannot escape it because there are speakers all over the place, even in, in public parks and uh, mobile speakers driven around the city. You can hear it in your hotel room early in the morning. Uh, it just goes on from morning to night. In fact, it reminds me of, do you remember the, the old 1960s British TV series, The Prisoner? Oh, yes. And uh, th there's a speaker in his room and, and he can't turn it off, but it, it, it's just, you know, it's on all the time playing music and he tries to break it, but they just come and replace it with a new speaker. That's right. Yes, indeed. Um, um, and in, oh, on. Well, in North Korea, it's exactly the same. Apart from anything else, radios and TVs are, are preset at the factories to receive only the state channels. But within your apartment block, yes, you have the speakers and yes, you can't turn them off. And yes, every so often the authorities will come and check that the speakers are working properly and that your radios and your televisions are still preset and can't yeah. pick up any um, stations from outside the country. A bit of a problem for NK News, I suspect. Yeah. Now, that's one side of it. The idea of having music around you and songs around you actually goes back to the Japanese colonial period. Ah. And the, the beginnings of, of having music in the workplace, which we now seem to think because of the ubiquity of music around us that has been there all the time. No, it, it hasn't. It's very much a 20th century thing. It's very much, much allied to the rise of broadcasting. Yeah. So in the 1930s, in a, in a, a Japanese-controlled factory, and it could have been in Korea because Korea was a, a colony of Japan at the time, you would have music played. You would have calisthenics. So you'd have group exercises to music. Right. There were times when the radio would broadcast the music for those group exercises every day. That was also true in South Korea until not long ago. It was indeed, but it's a sort of continuation from that. It's not just Japan, um, mm. but it's there rather than just thinking of it in, in North Korea. Yes, it was there in South Korea. It was there into the 1980s in South Korea. Yeah. It was allied from the 70s to the 80s with the Seimao, the New Village Movement. Right. And people would wake up to particular songs associated with the Seimao, with the, this um, idea of, of, of encouraging farming, encouraging industry, or encouraging study. Exactly the same in North Korea. Well, it, it makes me wonder that as an ethnomusicologist and anthropologist, what, what effect does this ubiquitous music have on on the uh, inhabitants of a place uh, does it does it have any psychological or, or social effect um yes it does now some people would say you just get immune to it so you, mm. you hear it every day and you no longer bother with it that's not strictly true people do get up they know this is their alarm call mm. um, they imbibe they take in the message of the songs even if you only hear an instrumental version of the songs and that's often the case these days with that sort of six o'clock alarm call that is documented in Pyongyang. You can find it on YouTube. You can see it in the Michael Palin documentaries of North Korea, if any of you know those. Right. Is that, uh, oh, General, Where Art Thou, or, or something similar? That's, that's right. And um, it's a particular song that's allied to Kim Jong-il, so the second leader, um, the father of the current leader. 
And it's a song that he is said to have written both the words and the music for, for one of the mm. revolutionary operas, although that's not the version that, that's performed today. Um, so yes, you, you imbibe those, those words, you know what the words are. It's almost as if the, the words as the ideology are sort of embracing you all around. You never get away from that. There's a, there's a sort of theoretical idea mm. um, from Foucault, um, the French philosopher, historian, and various other things. In his Discipline and Punish, his, his view of, of sort of prison and imprisonment, he talks about the panopticon, about being watched all the time as a prisoner, but performing all the time as a prisoner. Mm. It's sort of there all around. And, and songs do that within North Korea. So my view is that, you know, you can talk to any North Korea you meet and they know the words of the songs. They know the message of the songs. Mm -hmm. I wonder if North Koreans ever wear earphones or earbuds so that they can listen to their own music as they're going about daily life. And, and if, if there are any that do that, whether that's seen as a kind of a, a subtle uh, rebellion. Well, their own music is the same music. So <laughs> there is only one recording company in North Korea, and that is government controlled. It has various labels, of course. There is no independent production of, of music. And because of the monitoring system all the way down to small sort of group units and, and apartments, yeah. um, nobody would dare to produce their own music and promote their own music. Right. Okay. So they would have to, yeah, it, it would still be, as you say, the same music. It's all the um, same music. Another aspect there is that, you know, if, if you were to write your piece of music, mm. then you have to get it authorized by people above you within your unit all the way up to the official census. But of course, if, you, if you've written something which doesn't meet the ideological standards of the state, then you're not gonna show it to anybody for fear right. of being reported and for fear of fairly dire consequences. So there's no real incentive to create your own songs, your own music. So it would be, Difficult to imagine perhaps a, a North Korean at a, a company picnic picking up a guitar and, and saying, hey, I've got a new song that I've written. Do you guys want to hear it? They wouldn't dare. Um, they wouldn't dare. Actually, it's written about with, with, with Soviet-style music and Soviet-era music. Um, and the, the, the whole idea of censorship, it moves upwards and you've got your official ideologue um, censors, but it also moves right down. So the individual is very, very careful what they reveal to anybody outside their very, very close-knit friendship group. Right. And that brings us to the, the second half of your title about ideology and creativity in North Korean music and dance. So this creativity, it sounds like from what you're saying that it, it's, uh, it's quite stifled because it has to be within certain constraints and also be approved up the line before it can get any public airing. Um, that's right. So I, I would say that our idea of a sort of democratic and um, free creativity doesn't go back very far in history, mm. always being constraints on, on artistic production. So yes, it, it's, it's unusual in, in, in the contemporary world, but the constraints are there. So people work within them. So, you know, if, if you have musical talent, if, if you're able to play an instrument, you're interested in playing an instrument, if you're suddenly discovered as being a, a particularly excellent singer as a child, then you'll be trained. Yeah. And it, for the last 20, 25 years, it's actually been quite 
a significant way for people to move up the social ladder or keep their social status mm. by training their children um, as musicians or as artists. So you will be trained. You'll, you'll, you'll have your, your special um, children's palace education. So you'll go two or three times a week to have special lessons. You'll perform there. You'll be trained in, in terms of how you stand, your facial expressions, all of these sorts of things. You will then go to university. If you're showing talent to be, say, a composer, then you'll be trained as a composer. Mm. You will then be told where you're going to work and you'll work within a, a, within a group of artists or perhaps a group of composers. You know, the, the um, opera company, the Sea of Blood Opera Company still has a group of composers, a collective of composers, if you mm. like. And so you know, you're, you're, you're trained to, to behave in a particular way. Now, as a composer, yes, you are creative. You do create your music, but you're very careful um, you do it within the, the boundaries of the literary arts theory, which is set out by the state. You do it very carefully within your group. You don't challenge any of the boundaries there. So there is creativity, but it's within fairly constrained limits. What you're saying echoes very much uh, a conversation I had on this podcast not long ago with uh, Professor Kunda Koster of Leiden University about North Korean visual arts and painting particularly. Yes, and um, I, I have quoted him in my book. Um, ah. and, you know, we've known each other since he was studying for his PhD, which is 30 years ago. So right. um, yes, um, I think he, I've been going to North Korea longer than him, but that doesn't actually mean anything. The, the same literary arts theory applies across all of the arts. Mm -hmm. And it's a, a theory that descends from working out what Juche, this philosophy and idea associated with Kim Il-sung, um, was to mean. Now, that, that there's a famous Juche speech from the end of 1955, which sets down that artists need to do things to serve the state at all times. But it takes a while for that to be worked out as a sort of artistic policy. It takes away the idea of art for art's sake. It takes away the artist as somebody who can decide his own fate and go his own way mm. all of these things um, as it's worked out it becomes this thing called literary arts theory um, and so it's for writers for poets it's for fine arts it's for ceramicists it's for musicians it's for dancers it's across the board there as you say, he, he, uh, it rejects art for art's sake. Uh, I remember years ago when I was doing some research on uh, North Korean comics for my master's thesis, I had a look at uh, Kim Jong-il's Treaty on Fine Arts, and he uh, taught that all art had to have an education or ideological element, uh, not just an entertainment one. And is that also That's true right. for music and dance? Oh, yes, it's exactly the same. Um, and um, Kim Jong-il has the these treaties on fine arts, on opera, on yep. uh, literature, and on music. Um, there's even one on dance, thinking about it. So ah. yes, it's sort of rolled out in all those ways. Now, if you were a pedant or a historian, you can, you can track the development of literary arts theory. You can track it through journals in the 1950s and the 1960s, basically. It gets allied particularly with Kim Jong-il as leader, and in the mid-1960s, he took over 
a lot of the cultural production. He's associated particularly with film production and then with the revolutionary operas, the revolutionary operas are sort of 1971 to 73. But in fact, the literary arts theory comes before that. So I've done um, quite a lot of work looking at music through a journal, which was called Korean Music, Chosunama, mm. which was published between 55 and 67. And you can see some of the discussions and arguments in the articles. The arguments are, of course, shielded and, and shaded in, in, in some ways, but that's as the theory is worked out. You can mm. see the same for dance and um, theatre in the journal Chosen Yesel, which continues. Chosen Yesel means Korean arts. So a lot of the, the theory was worked out by the artists themselves, um, which is often missed in, in our discussions of these things. Mm. We associate it very much with Kim Jong-il, but it's not just Kim Jong-il. So are, are his books more like a distillation of the debates that were had before him? They are. And all, you know, the, the one on music, for instance, is, is published in, I think it's 1991, but actually a lot of it dates from much earlier than that, ah. same with opera. So it's a distillation. It adds his take on things, and his take can, can be, you will not do this. Right. As simple as that, yes, um, which isn't there in the journals and it isn't there in the discussions uh, between artists and writers. Now, part of the reason for that happening is because if you go back to 1945, Kim Il-sung and his um, sort of revolutionary fighters, if we can call them that, mm. uh, the group around him were not particularly concerned with art and literature. They weren't particularly well-versed in that. They had absorbed what was there in, in sort of what we could say popular culture in the 1930s. Yeah. So they allowed the artists and writers who settled in Pyongyang initially to, to set their own boundaries and to develop their own ideas ah. of what a, a socialist art might be. And only gradually did they have to be reined in to become more like a sort of socialist artist and a proletarian artist for that matter. So there's a period of overlap where you find a lot of the, we could call them more traditional, familiar art styles in, in terms of music, say symphonies and sonatas and things like that, which get replaced by the more ideologically sound literary arts theory-based pieces, all based on songs, because songs have the lyrics which give the ideological mes message. Yeah. So you know, there's, a, there's a long period there which we can actually document, and that, that's essentially what my book tries to do. Okay, before we go on with the, uh, the next question, could you play us a bit of a second song from North Korea? This one is, uh, I believe, the uh, song of General Kim Il-sung, one of the earliest North Korean songs. Indeed, it's um, Kim Il-sung Changguni Nore, so Song of General Kim Il-sung, written by, well, the lyricist is, is Ri Chang-shi, but the music is by a person called Kim Won-gyun, 1917 to 2002. The, the former music college in Pyongyang mm -hmm. is now the Kim Won-gyun uh, Music Conservatory, ah. or sometimes the Kim Won-gyun uh, Music and Arts University. So he's a very important person within the regime. Okay, let's have a listen to a minute of that and then we'll come back in.
Great. So just thinking about that song, there is a documentary that came out um, maybe 18 months ago about many of the North Korean children who were sent to Europe during the Korean War, mm. they went to Hungary and Poland. And some of the Polish and Hungarian people from that era who remember them and are interviewed in, 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 in the documentary point out that they sang, the children sang the North Korean national anthem. But it's not the national anthem, it's actually the song we just heard, the song right. of General Kim Il-sung. So that was written in 1946. And the, the real significance of it yep. is it predates the, the cult of leadership around Kim Il-sung. But it says, this is so dear to our hearts is our general's glorious name, our own beloved Kim Il-sung of undying fame. He did all these things. It tells us that he was uh, a guerrilla in the Manchurian plains. Mm. He was in the forests deep. He was a partisan. His deeds are so famous. It really sets up that leadership cult yep. before the cult is actually in existence. That's why Kim Won-gyun was such an important composer. He became head of the uh, sort of composer collective at the Sea of Blood Opera Company. Um, in death, his name is there as, as the honoured as the music university or the music and dance conservatory, however we look at that. So incredibly important. And in 1946, when it was written, Kim Il-sung wasn't really the only potential leader for North Korea. The Soviets were still looking at other people and were not sure about Kim Il-sung. There were factions, in other words. And so by nailing his colours to Kim Il-sung, Kim Won-gyun and his lyricist really became the first sort of proletarian composer and lyricist for North Korea. Mm. Now, it seems to me that uh, from the few texts of North Korean songs that I've looked at, that there are elements that would not sound out of place in Christian hymns, talking about the love of the father and being embraced by the father and the party and feeling blessed and following the guiding light, etc. Now, we know that Kim Il-sung came from a, a Christian family and even as a youth played organ at his, his mother's church. To what extent is there Christian theology and hymnology in North Korean music, whether that be in the lyrics or in the music itself? Quite a lot, and I, I will leave the discussion about whether Kim Il-sung is a sort of messianic figure um, to others, but certainly in the songs you'll hear, um, or you'll, you'll see in the lyric, lyrics, that his name is, is capitals. You, when talking about the leader, will be capital, this sort of thing. So, mm -hmm. yes, it, it, it is in a way messianic. It, it is in a way from the Christian tradition. If you look at the, the musical tradition, and how Western music arrived in East Asia, and particularly in Korea, it is associated with Christianity. Mm. Not only, but um, the sort of missionary hymns were there. And remember that Pyongyang was the site of a, a, a lot of missionary activity. And a sort of, there's a great revival that's talked about in 1908, um, 1908 yes. through the, the subsequent years. So it was a center of Christianity in the country. The, idea of, of the, the strophic songs, the fairly simple harmony, we could ally them to, to hymn tunes of the period and mm. sort of moody sankey hymn tunes of 19th century um, North America in particular. As popular songs evolve, so they also use the same sort of harmonic language, 
um, the same sort of melodic ideas. Yeah. But then they evolve in a slightly different way. And between the two, you have things like school songs, songs for children, which um, in Korea would be changa, using choka, a, a Japanese um, term, the same sort of um, Chinese root characters for that. So, yes, there's, there is a connection. And I guess in, in, in the Korean sense, there's always a certain danger in looking at popular songs and the, the development of popular songs as something that emerged in Japan rather than Korea. Mm. So that's an issue that, that's faced the South Korean government, who in the 1960s banned the songs that South Koreans would tend to call trot. Right. The foxtrot rhythm, the, the pongchak um, rhythm. And the, the, they sort of have this, wait a sec, there's this foreign color, the Japanese color. Those songs are there in North Korea, essentially because many of the, the people involved in creating those songs and singing them, not many, but quite a lot, moved to North Korea and settled in North Korea. So they were a sort of reservoir of excellence in songwriting and popular songwriting that North Korea found appealing. Mm. Yeah, so it's sort of Christianity meets popular culture, I suppose. It may be or it may be my, my computer. I shall ah. try. What about influence of Soviet or uh, Chinese communist music on North Korean popular music? Well, the influence of, of Soviet Union is, is profound. The influence of China is profound. The Soviet influence starts in 1945 mm. and Soviet cultural advisors in North Korea. From the late 1940s, there was an agreement where um, North Korean artists, including musicians, could go to the Soviet Union to study. Someone like Kim Won-gyun, who we've just mentioned, he went and he spent the better part of six years in the Soviet Union. Mm. On his return, he, he very quickly got rid of the um, more symphonic um, sonata form, the, the more abstract forms that he learned in the Soviet Union and went back to songwriting. Um, that connection was critical in the first decade of North Korea. It then comes in for a lot of criticism because, mm. you know, with, with the death of Stalin and uh, Brezhnev's um, secret speech, you get a lot of challenges, particularly from the factions who are Soviet leading, to Kim Il-sung's authority and the idea of him as the absolute leader. And so a lot of the Soviet artists found themselves persecuted. Ah. The Chinese influence and the Chinese Communist Party is also there. Some of the um, uh, North Korean artists, including writers, were at Yan'an and the Yan'an Forum, where Mao had talked about arts and literature. And a lot of the ideas in music seem to stem more directly from China than from the Soviet Union. It's a bit more complicated. So if we look at instruments, for instance, um, traditional instruments have been updated, become national instruments. Mm. And that updating started in China. It started during the Republic period, in, particularly in Shanghai, and then was sort of resuscitated and taken further um, during the communist period, where the idea was that every ethnic group needed its own instruments. And that included the Chinese Koreans up in Chilin province, the other side of, of Mount Pektu. 
not surprisingly, some of the North Koreans were very influenced by that. And in fact, some of the North Koreans were in uh, Chilin during the Korean War period, of course. They moved there. But if you look a little bit further, the development of instruments and the idea of national instruments goes back to actually before the Soviet Union, the Russian orchestra from mm. the 1890s, the balalaikas, these sorts of things that we associated so much with Russia. It's the idea of an orchestra equivalent to a Western orchestra, but with Russian instruments. And that during Stalin's period, particularly in the 1930s, was rolled out to the Soviet republics in places like Central Asia and beyond. So it's a complicated picture. Yeah. We can see the same with something like operas, the revolutionary operas, which North Korea is very proud of. Um, things like Sea of Blood or The Flower Girl, and there are films as well as operas. We can consider them purely North Korean, but there are equivalents in China. And the eight model operas during the, the Cultural Revolution, promoted and sponsored by Mao's wife, the flower girl in North Korea, the red head or the white haired girl. There, there, there are lots of parallels there and lots of more or less equivalents. But if we look a bit further, North Korea's revolutionary operas are all about the song content. So again, the, the words are ideologically sound. And the idea of a song opera is actually from the Soviet Union. It's from the late 1930s and it's after Stalin got very upset about an opera, which was meant to sort of um, celebrate his Georgian heritage, but was taken in the absolute opposite way. So song operas are there as well. Sorry, for those of us who may not be familiar, what, what is a song opera and how is it different from a non-song opera? So a song opera means that the, the basic construction blocks are songs, not really complex arias and recitatives recitatives where the music is very important but well think of a, an aria where somebody dies on stage Violetta yeah. in, in, in Verdi or Bizet's Carmen you know how they're, they're not in a way they're not natural mm. so the song is sort of subservient to the action and at times subservient to the music but in North Korea it's going to be the the song is the most important thing. So the instrumental music will be based on the, the songs and the songs have words. So you take the words in, that's the ideology, um, the seed theory in North Korean's term, the, uh, North Korea's seed theory is Chongjarong. Yeah. So the seed is the ideology seed, um, the appropriate thing. Now, rather than Violetta singing as she dies on stage, which is unnatural, what would happen in North Korea? Well, if somebody's dying on stage, they do the acting, but you have an offstage chorus that sings the song that mm. tells you what's going on. So that the action can be realistic. Ah. And that offstage chorus, it's called a pangchang, will be shared with the audience. So the audience can sing along with the offstage chorus. So again, the song is the center. Yeah. Now, there's only a, a small handful of... Uh... North Korean revolutionary operas that I'm familiar with. I think it's about five. Uh, why are there so few? Well, the five are the sort of model operas in the same way as you had the eight model operas in, in, in the Chinese um, uh, Cultural Revolution period. And the five were overseen 
uh, very strongly by Kim Jong-il, either directly or indirectly, and he speaks after their first performance, and he, well, he has huge amounts of influence over them. Um, the Pyongyang Film Studios, um, there's actually a room that celebrates him um, critiquing and affecting the first of those offstage choruses, mm. and his desk is preserved. His annotated copy of the, the lyric sheet is preserved. So he's very closely associated with them. Now, they all appeared between 1971 and 1973. Since then, there have been many other operas uh -huh. in the same style, revolutionary operas or, or people's operas. So operas about people's stories rather than just the leadership. But they're not revolutionary in the same sense as those five core operas mm. and it's the five core ones which were made into films or were filmed as operas and essentially you didn't just have to go to the theater to see them in Pyongyang those films would be circulated around the country and around the country your um, you as part of a community would be told you had to go to the film, you watched the film of the opera, mm. and then you were questioned and critiqued about your observance and your understanding of all the ideology and the, the sort of orthodox thinking that was embedded in the five operas. Oh, wow. So it's like, here, so here, watch an opera and there'll be a test afterwards. So remember everything. That's right. Yeah. Oh, uh, it'd be tough for me. I tend to fall asleep during long performances in a warm room. <laughs> well, the North Koreans would turn around and say that they have perfected a style of opera, which is a sort of multi-art phenomenon. So the backdrops are said to be wonderful. Right. The orchestra is said to be wonderful, a mix of, of Korean instruments and Western instruments. Um, the action is wonderful. So it's a sort of multifaceted performance rather than just the, the, the sort of opera style we know in the West. Now, how do you uh, understand uh, mass games and uh, gymnastics displays uh, through your framework? Do they fall under the rubric of dance? They can do. Um, the reason why in my book they're allied to dance is simply because I'm looking at a, a sort of dance notation mm. which emerged possibly in the 1980s officially slightly earlier. There's no record I've discovered and encountered in any archival library that predates the 1980s. So um, the point about the notation is that North Korea needed a notation that could work for high-level dance, but could also work for artistic agitators, if you like, to take to factories, to take to schools, and to work very economically, if you like, with large groups of people mm -hmm. to create the mass spectacles that we see today. So the notation works both for the specialist dance and for the more general movement. Now, if we look at uh, mass games, we have a sort of orthodox history in Korea, which says that Kim Il-sung um, developed the first one back in the 1930s. Others say that it's not until the 1940s, 1946, 47, that the first appears, but we need to go back further. I mentioned earlier the idea of calisthenics, the idea of, of, of exercises yeah. for workers at factories and schools, which goes back to the Japanese colonial period. And um, 
the Japanese broadcasting companies would have a specific time in the day when they broadcast music for calisthenics, for these exercises. We're seeing something of the same in mass games, but it's not just from Japan. And the mass games as we know them really started in Germany and Czechoslovakia much earlier. They're associated with movements in the um, 19th century, mm. but they get taken further at the beginning of the 20th century as a sort of celebration of the human body. So the exercise part, right. but also as art through, say, eurythmics, um, the, the Delcroix idea, going into, in the 1920s in Germany, people like Mary Wigman, Rudolf Laban, Laban becomes Laban notation, so there's a connection there, which is not just dance, it's a notation of effort and body movement. And you know, as far as most people are concerned, that sort of mass exercise and mass dance becomes a, a, a sort of critical part of the Berlin Olympics in 1936. So ah. it's associated with the Nazi regime. But by then, similar things were going on in the Soviet Union. And, you know, Gorky Park was site of mass games in mm. Stalin's period. So we can see a move from Europe um, into the Soviet Union and from the Soviet Union to North Korea, but we can also see underpinning it is an experience of group exercise, group calisthenics that dates to the, the Japanese colonial period. So in a way you can see the two going together. Yeah. And North Korea finds that mass games are, are key. It's going back to the idea of the panopticon, the being observed all the time and performing all the time in the way that you're expected to perform. So in the mass games, essentially, it's the idea that everyone takes part where everyone wants to take part and everyone does things in well, a synchronous way in which everyone is there together. Mm. But the mass games are really fascinating. If you look at them in more detail, you have specialism at one side um, and incredibly complex moves, basically. But at the other side, you have simplicity. Um, there is a, a dance um, festival on Kim Il-sung's birthday every year, where in Kim Il-sung Square, used to be called Stalin Square, maybe 60, 70,000 youth get together. But by youth, there's a particular term here. These are the sort of unmarried people in their 20s, typically, ah. before they get married. And you look at this and you look at these 60,000 plus, however many people it is in a year, and you think they're all, they're like cogs in a machine. Mm. But if you look closely, they're doing very simple dance moves. However, your eyes are focusing on the experts in the middle who are doing the more sort of professional specialized movements. And so you get the two fusing together in which we sort of don't notice the simplicity of the masses, but think of the complexity of the specialists at the center. Hmm. That's fascinating. What have we seen in the performance art aesthetics in North Korea under Kim Jong-un in the last nine years? How has he changed what came before him? Has he been as hands-on as his father Kim Jong-il was? Yes, but in a slightly different way. Now, Kim Jong-il was already changing things. If you like the, the sort of pop music, 
which had um, emerged in the 1980s with two state bands, um, Pochombo and Wang Jiesan. So Pochombo, now that, that uh, Where Are You Dear General, the song that comes at 6 a.m. Mm. in the morning, is really associated with Pochombo. Yeah. Um, and it's an Pochombo electronic ensemble. So it's the electronic instruments that some people would think is, is something like the theremin, for instance. Yes. Um, but it's actually electronic organs and things, and particularly particularly the Yamaha Electron, I think. So that was sort of mid-80s onwards. Pochombo started in 85, the other group, Wang Jisan, in 1983. By about 2000, they were becoming a bit long in the tooth. Mm. Um, you can still buy their, their CDs, their albums in North Korea, and Pochombo, last time I looked, had issued, I think it was 189 albums. Is it the same members all the time, or they keep changing a bit no, like Boney no, M did? They do keep changing, but not like Boney M, but yes, they keep changing. Um, people are assigned to them. Okay. All musicians, incidentally, are technically part of the military, so you're working for the state, and so you can be assigned to a particular place. But from about 2000 onwards, uh, Kim Jong-il was experimenting with other things. He was sending people abroad to study, to learn more contemporary ideas, and he was training people in new ways from well by the time we've mentioned Morambong band which um, came in 2009 there were experiments with different groups and that was one of them now kim jong-un became associated with this new sort of experiment and something like um, a greater sexualization shorter skirts mm. um, instrumental groups rather than just songs and Kim Jong-un was particularly associated with Morambong Band. And so they're, they're photographed with him all the time or with his wife, Ri Sol Ju. And his wife, of course, was a singer yeah. with one of the bands earlier. Um, so it seemed that things were changing and we were getting a much more contemporary style. Some people were saying it was um, um, because North Koreans were secretly importing um, DVDs and flash drives with K-pop, South Korean pop. Yes. But, yeah, things were getting long in the tooth, basically, so there needed to be a change. But that change changed again. So where Kim Jong-un seemed to be catering to the youth and the youth of today, there seems to have been a, a sort of resistance. The censors are still in place. The ideology is still in place. And so there was something like Morambong Band, they disappeared for a period and then they came back. When they came back, a lot of the makeup had gone, mm. a lot of the short skirts had gone. And then singers start appearing in front of the instrumentalists where it had been an instrumental band to start with. So the singers come back with the words because the words give the ideology again. Yeah. And you know, the first song I started with, We Will Follow You, is actually fairly traditional if you think about it in terms of structure it's not much different to any song you'd have heard in the 80s or the 90s um, and the last song we're going to hear shortly is again Morambong band mm -hmm. but playing a song from the 1990s which actually is very much like the sort of ballads which ruled across Asia in the 1960s and 1970s mm. And if you think about that, it, it's very much in the legacy of the popular song style that South Koreans call trot or yuhenga, 
Japanese called Enka, Enka. which comes from the 1930s. Mm. So not a lot has actually changed. Now, a few minutes ago, you mentioned um, the uh, surreptitious smuggling in of, uh, of K-pop CDs and DVDs and, and USB drives. And then, of course, just a few years ago in 2018, during the height of the rapprochement between the two Koreas, uh, some South Korean bands went up and gave a performance in uh, in Pyongyang and even photographed together with Kim Jong-un. And then we had just recently, um, uh, just a few weeks ago, Kim Jong-un once again um, writing against the popularity of foreign pop music or other cultural products. What, what do you see going on there? Well, first of all, I noticed that when, when the South Korean pop went up in, in 2018 after the Winter Olympics, it was 2018, yeah. I hope so, various things were televised and various acts weren't. Blue Velvet, the, the real K-pop, never got televised in North Korea, never got broadcast. Mm. Yes, South Korea has the film and the film exists, but it wasn't considered appropriate for all North Korean ah. people. So that, that's quite key. So K-pop has never been tolerated Fair enough. Why? A, because it, it speaks to freedoms that are not there in North Korea. It, it, it speaks to excesses. It speaks to love. It speaks to a sort of sexualization, mm. which would never be tolerated in North Korea. So, yes, some people say that Marangbom band and other groups and songs and styles that have appeared in North Korea are a reaction to K-pop. In one way they are, but they're still within the frame that the censors and the ideologues allow. And that point, that, no, that, that censorship has never really hmm. gone away. Yes, I, you're never going to get a point where North Korea feels confident to allow K-pop sort of free reign in Pyongyang and North Korea generally. Much of our information on K-pop actually comes from refugees who've left North right. Korea. Now, that is also significant. And so, yes, some K-pop is there. There are times when, say, the equivalent of the Norebang, the, the song rooms and the karaoke machines, when there's a lot of control being exerted over those machines and K-pop is being found mm. on them or rumored to be found on them. And we hear from refugees that they were singing K-pop in the karaoke room. It's very difficult to work out how widespread yes. that is. In the same way as it's actually very difficult to work out how the authority of the center and the, the, the sort of popular culture from the center makes it out into the rural heartland of North Korea. And it's always been difficult. North Korea is at that point very isolated and it sort of isolates each area, each county. So it's actually very, very difficult to judge how much is getting through to people or has been getting through to people and how much the North Korean regime is actually finding and controlling. Hope that sort of makes sense. I'm, I'm hedging my my comments there fairly carefully yes, but to, to a certain extent uh, it sounds like we can only really say for sure what happens in and around Pyongyang because that's 
where most of our information comes from? It's a sort of yes and no answer to that, because we do have mm. refugees who have come from the provinces and from fairly distant places. And one of the things that um, I've noticed in talking to um, refugees is some of them know very mm. little. They don't know the, the songs that you know, Pocho Bola right. put out, um, the songs which are on CDs and that are heard all the time on, say, YouTube. And in the past, we have documentation where some of the refugees from rural districts close to the border were not very strong on, say, plain ideology about the mm -hmm. leadership. So they didn't have a radio, they didn't have newspapers. So, yeah, it, it, it's really difficult to get a picture of the whole mm. of the country. Now, I'm a big fan of the accordion, so I'm always happy when I see people playing it well. And there are some amazing accordionists uh, in North Korea, as the world learned when uh, Norwegian auteur Morten Travik got five North Koreans to play Aha's song, Take On Me, on accordion. You can find that on YouTube. It's amazing to watch, and it's attracted almost three million views in nine years, which is quite a lot for a, uh, a North Korean video. Have you got anything in your book about accordions that uh, might interest us? I've got a little bit. Um, I'm not exactly a fan ah. of accordions, I will admit, though you know, Annie Prue's book, Accordion Crimes, is, is, is an all-time favourite, except everyone in it seems oh. to die. Um, the accordions have been incredibly important in North Korea, as they were in the Soviet Union. In, in early times, for the Soviet Union, essentially most accordions, if not all of them, were, were, were made in mm -hmm. East Germany. Then they were made in China, and it appears they're made in North Korea as well. And I, I haven't looked in enough detail, really, to find out the origins or the, where the North Korean instruments are modeled. But the advantage of an accordion is that it's useful to get classes or groups or factories all to sing songs or to dance. It's useful to use in public spaces, out in fields or somewhere. You can't take right. a piano with you in a field or into a square, but you can take an accordion. So it's a very useful instrument at that point. The, the term for the accordion in North Korea, I find quite fascinating, son, son pung gum, which literally means son hand, pung wind, gum. Um, it could be zither or it could be increasing mm. an instrument. Now that's a term that actually is also used in China for the mm. same instrument. And it's a term which appears to go back to um, Japan in the 19th century uh, when it was coined for early accordions there. I'm told by, by some um, Japanese ethnomusicologists. Uh, we've recently had a discussion about that on uh, Facebook incidentally. So it's an incredibly important instrument essentially because of the difficulty of getting pianos or organs or instruments that a large group can use as their sort of accompanying instrument so that they can sing or dance mm -hmm. and learn the moves essentially for mass games or mass celebrations. But I also see accordions sometimes mixed in with traditional instruments. So you'll have the kayagum and the accordion playing the same song at the same time. And that always feels a bit wrong to me, a bit like mixing sweets and savouries in the same meal. Yes. Now, North Koreans would say that the accordion is a Korean instrument. I mean, clearly, historically, it's, it's, not, uh, it's not. Well, yes. I, I phrased my 
comment in a particular yes. way there. Um, there is, well, first of all, you know, there was a move to revive and develop traditional instruments like mm -hmm. Kaigam into national instruments. And as national instruments, the instruments were required to be capable of playing both Korean music and a more international mm. music. So essentially to, to be as good or better than Western equivalents. Um, and therefore, the national instruments have to be able to play diatonic scales, the, the major mm -hmm. minor keys of Western music, not just the traditional uh, pentatonic or restricted modes of Korea. They have to be able to play alongside Western instruments. They have to be able to hold their own there. That's why in, in the revolutionary operas, there are um, national instruments, AKA traditional instruments, as well as Western instruments. But there is an acceptance that national instruments, AKA traditional instruments, really are associated with career of the past. And so if you look at the operas, um, the national instruments come when you have a folk song, uh, when you have something to do with farming, when you have something to do with the scenery of Korea. So they have a role there. So there is a sort of acceptance that they're exceptional for Korean things, but there is an ideological point where they have to be the equivalent, if not better than Western instruments. Therefore, they have to play alongside mm. Western instruments. Now, I've heard that Kyogum in North and South Korea differ in the number of strings. Is that true? It's true, but in both places, there have uh -huh. been developments. So the, the traditional Kyogum comes in two styles. One was bigger than the other, uh, but both had 12 strings. And the 12 strings for two and a half octaves, you know, if, you, if in an octave on the piano, you've got 12 mm -hmm. notes, seven white notes, five black notes. In the Kyogum case, you've got five, full stop. So North Korea has had to develop the instrument to, to play major and minor scales, Western scales. It has to be able to play all the notes of a Western octave. So it went up to 21 strings mm. fairly quickly, again with two and a half octaves or closer to three octaves. South Korea, for a long time, oh, incidentally, that, that also happens in China with the equivalents of the Kayagum, the, the Jong or Gujong. Uh, gu being old, ah, so yes. that's the old, um, in the Chinese sense, 13-string instrument, but Gujong tends to be between 21 and 25 strings, for the same reason, um, to be able to play the same as Western instruments. In South Korea, something different happened. There was resistance to change until the 1980s, but then it was decided that the Kayagum needed to be able to play essentially like a piano. What can a piano do? Well, with two hands, you can do accompaniment and a melody. Left and oh, right yes. hands. On the Kayagum, you only used one hand. So the expansion in South Korea was to 21, 23, 25 strings, a number of experiments there, so that you could play chords as well as melodies. So harmony as well as melodies, accompaniment as well as mel melodies. That was one thing. Then other people came along and said, well, because we had traditionally two different instruments, one big, one small, the big one was officially for court music, the small one was more for what South Koreans would call folk music. So if we put those together, 
we need more than 12 strings. And that became a, a 17 mm. string instrument. In South Korea's traditional music orchestras, you tend to see the 17 string instrument now. With South Korean performers playing traditional music, you still see the 12 string instrument, but South Korean performers playing contemporary music, contemporary compositions, go up to the 25 ah. string instrument. So you get a variety in South Korea. But in South Korea, it's still the, the, the sonic representation that we associate with, with traditional Korean music. In North Korea, the sound changes because it needs to be the equivalent of Western yeah. music. So a lot of the, the, the sort of what a detractor might call plinkety blonk mm -hmm. stuff, stuff that doesn't sound quite, quite in tune for Western ears, disappears in North Korea. But it's still there in South Korea. That's uh, that's fascinating. I'd, I'd never heard it uh, explained so fully. From reading your book, will people learn just about North Korean music and dance, or do you integrate it in to give them a better understanding of the nation as a whole? I try to integrate it. You get a lot of history. You get a lot of um, reasons behind the sort of operatic scenes and the stories of operas. The reasons behind songs. Song culture and, and music in North Korea is, is very fundamental to the state. Songs are like newspaper mm. editorials. They tell you what's going on. And therefore, studying music tells us more about North Korea generally. Now, let's take that one stage further, because so many people still tell us we don't know about North Korea. We don't know enough. Um, it's an unknown place. We need to have studies of arts and of every aspect of North Korea to to better understand it. What we've got with music is, you know, I, I've worked with archives and libraries around the world because sources are around the world, not just in North Korea. I've worked in North Korea and interviewed North Koreans. Um, I'm trying to put, build a picture through music of North Korean society and how the society has evolved to its contemporary form and to show how that evolution, that development, has been accomplished partly through the use of music and dance. Thank you. And now uh, to, to finish off the show, we'll listen to uh, the first minute or so from a third North Korean song. Uh, this is one you mentioned earlier, uh, written in 1992, but it's a much more recent recording, and it's a song called Mother. That's right, Mother, Omni. Now, this again is from Modern Bong Band. But it was written for Pochombo in terms of uh, the composer as Ri Kwang Son, a very well known um, composer and a very well known song from that time. It, it starts with an accordion, so you're on familiar yes, territory there. But it sort of goes back, and it, 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 it's within that tradition which you can track all the way back to the 1920s and 1930s and the beginning of the mm. recording industry in East Asia, which was. The Japanese recording industry, remember, because Korea was a colony of Japan. So you've got that. You've got the accordion. You've got this tradition going back. And you've also got, if, if we were to think about the words, you know, mother always finds out your pain as a child mm. and everything. Mother's kind and generous bosom, the cradle of never-ending love is how the chorus goes. But that bosom, that cradle, becomes the leadership of North Korea. And it's sort of, if, if, if you were to, to deconstruct it, the mother of the nation was Kim Il-sung's first wife, the mother of Kim Jong-il, 
but here the mother becomes the leadership. So Kim Il-sung, Kim Jong-il, through to Kim Jong-un. Okay, let's listen to a minute of that. to do research. Have you ever brought up uh, Japanese historical influences on North Korean music? Just wondering how they how they would react to that in North Korea. They wouldn't be happy and I wouldn't want to put people on, on, on the spot. One of the problems of doing work in North Korea is that you must assume that anybody you're talking to, even if your guides and people like that have disappeared, everything is being right. recorded. And the people you're talking to are the people who will suffer, not you as the foreigner assuming you get out of the country. So I would never put somebody on the spot. Now, having said that, in interviews, you will be told things which indicate more than the official story. But I tend to feel it's not my role to try to force the people I work with into un uncomfortable positions or into positions where they mm. might suffer. Now, this is kind of challenging as an academic but i feel very strongly i'm working with musicians and other artists who are they've got brains like me they know what's going on and they know the limits of what they're allowed to say or do and i need to go away and put the pieces of the jigsaw together mm. really in a way that i cannot expect North Koreans to do. Now, that would be one potential criticism of my book. I don't try to criticize the North Korean leadership or the literary arts theory. I try to tell you what's there and why it's there. I leave it to other people to do the other sides of the story, if you like, because my, my role is literally to put pieces of the jigsaw into place by being able to go from what I'm told in North Korea, what is in the North Korean mm. books, to other sources, whether it's in Japan or in colonial times in Korea or to the Soviet Union or to China, and to add those pieces of the jigsaw into place to create the um, story of North Korean music and dance. Have you sent any copies of your book to uh, um, your counterparts in North Korea? No, um, they are aware of it. And I have offered them through the, there is a North Korean right. embassy in London. Obviously, you know, because I was, I was citing lyrics and um, notations of song melodies. So I did write to them and told them exactly what mm -hmm. I was citing and said if they had any problems, um, they should contact me, and I sought permission. I had considerable exchanges, and then everything mm. went silent. So it's 
kind of difficult to, to do any more than that. Again, with individual scholars or performers in North Korea, um, I can only write to them through people within propaganda departments or diplomats. And I recognize the danger of trying to communicate directly with them. So the North Koreans have not asked me for any mm. copies of the book. And you know, if, if I sent copies to the North Korean embassy in London, I'm not sure that it would do anything except <laughs> go into a bin. So clearly the North Koreans will not agree with many things which are in the book because I put pieces of the jigsaw together from the colonial period, from Soviet Union, from China. And I do more than is allowed, permitted, within North Korean discourse. And that includes the North Korean books that are published and the journals that are published. Our perspectives are, are going mm. to be very different. So yes, it, it's, I don't within the book want to overtly politicize. I really want to educate and say that actually the, the materials are there for us to understand far more about, in this context, music and dance than you may be aware from just watching the odd YouTube yes. clip. Oh, that's a, a good point for us to end our interview today. Thank you once again, Professor Keith Howard, for coming on the NK News podcast. Well, thank you very much. Don't forget, ladies and gentlemen, to check out the book, Songs for Great Leaders, Ideology and Creativity in North Korean Music and Dance, published by Oxford University Press, and you can order that at your favourite online bookstore right now. And or don't forget, if you have an NK News account, and if you're a think tank, business or academic institution, check out NK Pro. Our NK Pro platform offers unparalleled services specifically catered to the needs of professionals who monitor developments on the Korean Peninsula. Inquire about access at membership at nknews.org today. And if you have any feedback, questions or guest recommendations, please send them to podcast at nknews.org. Our thanks as always to Arius Dare and Brian Betts for facilitating this podcast and to Gabby Magnuson, our new post-recording producer genius, who will have edited in those three musical clips that you heard earlier today. So thanks for that. And listen again next time. <laughs>